how many of you would call yourselves runners? Or maybe you wouldn't call yourself a runner. Maybe you run, but you wouldn't call yourself a runner. Uh, John, John is the only person. Well, you did in high school, right, Kyle? You ran? Not anymore. Not anymore. I just, used that's to be. that's the days of the past. <laughs> so you put off that clothing and put on something else, the old man. Uh, but I, I've run. Uh, I ran in high school and track and cross country. I was not good at all. Um, I don't know if that's surprising or not. And he said, "Why are you running? You should have been playing basketball." But I never did. Uh, but running, I wasn't good at it. Ran cross country. And I always had, uh, the thing about races was they always would start off pretty good. You were with all these people, and there's kind of this adrenaline, you have all your energy. And one of my big difficulties in track, at least, was I would always get shin splints. And in cross country, I'd always get like a side ache. And I could, could not figure out, is it wa- drinking enough water? Is it this or that? Why do I keep getting this? So, you know, I start off strong, and it's feeling good. And then eventually, it's like the side ache sets in and I have a hard time pushing through it. And I wasn't, I don't know if I have like a low pain tolerance or something, maybe ask Katie, she might agree, but I, there's some people that kind of would run through the pain, and when I was like feeling tired and my lungs are burning and whatever else, I wasn't very good at running through the pain, That I was just like, you know, just push through this and make it happen. It was kind of like, I want to breathe better. I want to feel a little better, so I had a hard time running in the middle. But then at the end, and sometimes throughout it, but usually, especially at the end, You'd have all your teammates, you'd have all the people from other teams right at the end as you're going to cross the finish line and cross country. So you, you know, have 3. Uh, 3, yeah, 3.1 miles by yourself, basically. And at the end, you have all these people standing there cheering on. And I always feel this kind of like extra surge of like, okay, I can like power through. People are cheering for me. People are watching. I'm almost at the end. And, but the thing was, the middle was the hardest part. And as we're finishing up this uh, first Peter, this letter that, uh, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, uh, sent to this church about 40 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. Uh, we've named this series different because Peter's really talking about how do you be different in a world that makes it difficult, that your beliefs are different, your, uh, your hope is different, the way you, your lifestyle is different, and the whole world is like, uh, it's like you're standing in a stream, and the whole world has this current that's trying to take you in a different direction, and he's saying, how do you stay different when that current is uh, pushing against you? And as he wraps up, really, the idea of a race, many um, authors in the New Testament picture the Christian life or the life of following Jesus as this race that you need to start it and finish it well. And Peter's really wrapping up, talking about how do we finish this race together? And in particular, he, if we look back at the passage we looked at last week, uh, he begins this passage with... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, with so, uh, or therefore. And so it's, whatever he's about to say is kind of in connection to what came before it. And last week we talked about how Peter's saying there's this fiery trial. And fire, when it comes in contact with metal or gold, especially as we talked about in chapter 1, it's either going to purify it and make it more genuine, melt off all the impurities, or... It can destroy something. It can destroy a tree or you know a house or whatever. But so when you're coming in contact with this fire of uh, this trial of your faith, it can purify your faith or it might lead to uh, destruction. And so he's talking about what's our proper response to that fiery trial, that God's judgment that is coming to our life, that it's coming in to purify our faith. Or and he says really the proper response is humility. The proper response to this trial. I mean, God's grace is humility. And so we're going to do uh, 
basically three or four sections here, uh, the four sections for these last, this last chapter. And he starts off talking to the leaders of the church. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising all, all his pause there, actually. So he's addressing these elders, which you know really just literally means people that are older in the congregation. Uh, but in particular, it's a, people who are older who are in a specific office in this congregation. When you look at uh, the New Testament, there's really two official offices uh, or positions in the church. There's elders and there's deacons. And the word elder, uh, there is, there's interchangeable terms, elder, pastor, overseer. They're all really referring to the same role. There's passages where it maybe uses two of those words. There's passages where it maybe uses all three of them, passages where it uses one. But it's these uh, three synonyms. And he does it here. He says, elders, I exhort the elders among you. And then jumping down to verse 2, shepherd or pastor the flock that is among you, exercising oversight. And so overseer. So he says, elders, your job is to pastor and your job is to uh, oversee, overseeing uh, this group of people. And there's all, whenever the New Testament talks about it, there's always multiple. There's a, or what's often called a plurality. There's multiple elders, not one elder, pastor, overseer. There's multiple within the congregation. And so you can see that in Acts 14.23, uh, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Those are just two examples, Acts 14.23, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, where there's multiple. And Peter's saying, I'm a fellow elder among you. And if you remember uh, when Peter, he denied Jesus three times, at the end of John's Gospel, John 20, uh, 21, he, Jesus comes to him and says to Peter, Will, do you love me, Peter? He gives him three opportunities to restate his love. Like he's denied him three times, gets an opportunity to three times recommit. But then after each of those, he says things like, feed my lambs, uh, take care of my sheep. And so Peter feels like I'm in, he's in this role. He's mostly based in Jerusalem, but also has this, you know, feels like he has this role to the whole church as well. He's he, uh, writing to these people. Uh, you can read in verse one, chapter one, verse one of Peter to uh, to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and so he's this elder over the church who's pastoring and overseeing and taking care of uh, God's flock, and he's writing to these others who are elders, leaders in this church as well. And uh, what I want you to, as we go over this passage, you know, we're in a unique time in our church because the way that. Um, Congregations in the Evangelical Free Church of America work is that there's a congregation who has become part of the congregation officially through membership, and that membership is able to then vote on significant issues such as the budget and hiring, you know, stuff like that. Um, right now, we're in a transition, you know, not transition, but a um, kind of a temporary situation where we have a leadership team. We don't have a team of elders. We don't have congregational votes. Um, although we try to involve everyone as much as possible and getting opinions and whatnot. But the ideal is that we'd have multiple elders as part of, that are leading this church and a congregation that has a, a confirmed and approved of those elders who are you know, then empowered to lead in the ways that they're given charge of. And so as we go through this, I want you to just ask yourself, is this me? Does this describe me? What Peter says here about elders um, and and if you're a man, I believe Paul limits the role of elder in the church to men. Uh, if you look at First uh, Timothy three one, he says you know it's a, supposed to be a male, and we can go into a big talk about 
uh, what that, uh, you know, if that is offensive to our culture and what that means, what should that look like. But if you're a, a man here this morning, I want you to ask as we're going through this, is this me? And, and you should also be asking, do I see this in anybody else in this congregation? So all of us can ask, do I think somebody in this church, that this describes somebody in our church? And you can also be asking personally, does this describe me? And then talk about me, talk to me about it afterwards if you see that or sense that. And so what are they supposed to do? Two responsibilities he gives. Uh, one is to shepherd the flock of God. Emphasis there, of God. It's not their flock. It's God's flock. And so really they're stewards and you know, in an under role under God. And then involved, what do shepherds do? They lead the flock. They feed the flock. They protect it. They guide it. And so they're supposed to do that. They're also supposed to oversee. And we might think of this as that kind of means the business of the church. Uh, but really, in the New Testament, this overseer word is somebody who's like sitting on top of a tower, looking out and overseeing, looking for danger, looking for things that might endanger the people. And so that's really what the overseer means, that they're looking out, they're watchmen. And so with what motives and in what manner are they to do it? And sometimes you get the most clarity about something by not trying to define the thing itself, but to find the opposite of what that thing would be. And so he, Peter gives these three opposites here. He says... Verse 2, you should shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so here's some opposites. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And so you know, for me, as pastor of Good News Church, it's really a privilege and an honor. It's not a, a thing that it's like, I just, I'm, somebody said I'm supposed to do this, so I'm doing it. But it's like, it's an honor and a privilege. And so he's talking about that this should be done as an honor. Like, I get to do this. And that's how I often feel. Like, really, how I get to spend my work days reading and studying God's Word in order to help us live out that Word. I mean, how, what greater a privilege would there be? And maybe you're thinking, like, that's not for me. I'm glad somebody else is doing it. And that could be an indication that this maybe is not a, a great role for you. Secondly, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And so he's saying you shouldn't be motivated, motivated by gain, what you're going to get uh, from this, and it's kind of like you would do it for free. If nobody's paying you. You would just do this in your spare time, uh, and that's how I feel about it. Well, it's, as well, it's like the money that the church provides to me in order to free me to do this is that's not why I'm doing it. I would do it for free if there's a you know that if my family was provided for by some other means. It's like you don't need doing it for any sort of gain. And then he says also not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And Jesus told his disciples, greatness is not about power or position, but service. And so if you're wanting to be in a leadership role, authority is never about, okay, I have authority, that means there's more people serving me because I can tell them what to do. But Jesus says, no, authority and greatness means the more people uh, around, the more people I'm called to serve. And so he's saying, not this domineering, he says, that's how uh, the world does leadership. That's how the world does authority. But that's not supposed to be you, but who wants to be great must be a servant. And I like to think of it like this, that asking the question, who are the leaders of this church, is the same as asking who's laying down their life for this church. It's not asking who's in charge, who, you know, who's getting paid the most, who has the highest authority, but it, the same, asking who's, who are the leaders of this church is the same as asking who's laying down their life for this church. And Peter really shows us that the inner life matters, the why and the how matters. It's not just about results. It's like, okay, you know, the ends justify the means. Like, as long as they're getting the stuff done, like, it doesn't matter their attitude or how they're doing it. No, he's saying 
there's a motive, there should be a proper motivation, there should be a proper manner of how they're going about this. And then he talks about this reward uh, in chapter, uh, verse 4. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So we're reminded back of chapter 2, verse 25, where Peter says, All you were straying like sheep, but you've returned to the overseer and the shepherd of your souls. Uh, chapter 2, verse 25. And so, really, any elder slash pastor slash overseer is really an under-shepherd. That there's a chief shepherd, and they're an under-shepherd under him. And so, in all that they do, they ought to reflect his character. They ought to re- represent his uh, agenda, his plan, his will. And in James 3, 1, James warns, that says, uh, you shouldn't aspire to be a teacher, you know, just, you know, kind of willy-nilly. He says, because you're going to give an account for your teaching. That this is a responsibility under somebody else who's the one calling the shots. And so, and he says, you'll get these crowns uh, of glory. And in the athletic victories or the military victories, uh, the Roman Empire would give out these little leafy crowns, um, which would die because they're made of leaves. But he's saying, you're going to get the unfading crown of glory from Jesus Himself, And this is a reward, a reward based on what they do with their responsibility. And so again, I want to ask, is this you? Are you drawn toward helping others walk with God without anyone telling you and for no desire for gain? Do you have a desire? And would others affirm that desire? Or do you, uh, maybe you feel like that's not me, but I think this person in our church, that's like them. They're, they're helping people when nobody's asking them to. They're doing it for no gain at all. They're just... They have this desire to shepherd and oversee uh, the church of God, God's flock. And just one little note, like the word elder literally means elder. And so you might be wondering, well, Mitch, I know you're 36, but you look 24. How are you an elder? <laughs> How are you an elder of this church? Uh, and, you know, that, that position for me was, you know, going went through an assessment process and was affirmed um, by people outside of this church and then to sent here to, to do this. And there are, I don't know if I call it exceptions, but uh, Paul calls Timothy and sends him to a place, and he tells him in that, like, let no one despise you for your youth. Set an example, he says. And uh, he says, let them see your progress in godliness and teaching. And so, I mean, I've often remarked to myself and other people, we started this, what was I, 28 or whatever when we came, or 29 or something, whatever, and I was like, how in the world did I convince anybody to let me lead a church? I mean, it's in my 20s. Like, what in the world were they thinking? And then I have to, in some ways, looking at this passage, uh, 1 Timothy um, 4.15, where Paul says, let people see your progress in godliness and teaching. So it's not let people see your perfection, that you've got it all figured out, but uh, as I think Peter is saying here, like there should be this humility, this desire to serve. Let people see, you know, you don't have it all together yet, and you probably never will, but let people see that you're progressing in being a better teacher and leader and in godliness. And so I find that passage comforting. And so he moves on, and he covers the elders, and he only has really like a half a verse for the people that they would be leading. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And we've seen this theme in, in Peter. He says, uh, in chapter 2, verse 13, be subject to every human institution. In chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. In chapter 3, verse 1, wives, be subject to your husbands. And now he says, congregation, uh, be subject to those who are in leadership uh, with uh, over you. And he doesn't really give this asterisk. There's like no qualifications. Like, be subject 
uh, if they deserve it, or unless, you know, you know, he doesn't give these conditions, these qualifications, he just simply says, be subject to them. And I find it interesting, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, basically the command to the congregation there is, make it a, a joy for your leaders to be leading you in how you're responding to them, how you're uh, being subject to them, how you're submitting that. Make it a joy for you to be led. Uh, but then also 2 Corinthians one twenty four. The Apostle Paul is telling the leaders there, uh, or the church there, he's saying, we are working for your joy. And so leaders ought to be working for the joy of the people that are God has entrusted to them. But then also the people should be responding to that in such a way that it's a joy to, to lead those people. And I find, you know, this chapter 5, or, you know, Peter 5, 5, is a command, be subject to the elders. And I've said it a couple weeks back when we were talking about... Um, where Peter says, wives, be subject to your husbands. But a leader, what a, if you want to know what a, a leader abusing their power looks like, it's when they take the commands to the congregation. So this is a command to the congregation. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. It's when they take that command and start applying it to people like, hey, you need to be subject to me. That's what Peter says here. That's when a leader is abusing their power. They're focusing on the commands given to the congregation instead of the commands given to them that say, be an example, don't domineer, don't do it for shameful gain, do it gentleness and respect and with love and like Jesus. And so a leader ought to be thinking, how can I most be like Jesus toward these people that uh, God has entrusted to me? They shouldn't be saying, you people need to fall in line and submit or be sub- subject to me. And then he moves on, that's you know, talking about leaders and those following. Uh, then he says, basically moves it on to everyone. He says at the second half of verse 5, uh, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Uh, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we saw this uh, two weeks ago, the uh, several one another commands. And this is another one of, there's 59 in the New Testament, and this is another one of them. Be, uh, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That the whole church, leaders, and, who, and everybody part of the congregation should be clothing themselves with humility toward one another. It's for leaders and those being led. And the question I ask myself is, what's it like to submit to a leader who's clothing themselves with humility toward you? And what is it like to lead someone who's clothing themselves with humility toward you? And so we all aren't worrying about uh, the other person. We're worrying, am I clothing myself with humility toward my leaders? Am I clothing myself with humility uh, toward you. So we put on those clothes. We take off the clothes of pride and we uh, are humble toward one another. And why should we do this? He says, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And really, this could be a summary. This little phrase comes up you know, in several places in the Bible. It's really a summary of how God interacts with people. If you want to know how to be on God's good side or how to have God's favor, it's you interact with Him with humility. And Peter really here isn't saying that uh, be humble toward God. He's saying be humble toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So our humility isn't just in relation to God, but our humility, he's saying, in relation to each other, if you're being prideful toward each other, he says God's going to oppose you. He's not going to give grace to you. He's not going to shower his favor upon you. And and so that principle really sums up uh, in a lot of ways the Bible, how we interact with each other or to interact with God. And so these verses, verses 5, uh, 1 through 5, he's kind of talking about, okay, you guys have this trial, you have this suffering, you're going through it, God's testing you, purifying your faith, 
Here's how you should interact with one another. Leaders do this, and those who are in the congregation, you do this, and all of you do this. That's kind of like the, the church, talking to the church, uh, how they're interacting with each other. Then he moves to, okay, looking out, let's go back to this. We, you're suffering. And I want to talk to you about how to be humble in your suffering. You're suffering for your faith. And so he says in verse 6, uh, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so this is based upon what he just said. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So it's like, okay, humble yourselves toward each other. And now, he, since he opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves toward God as well. And he talks about under God's mighty hand. And this is you know, echoed throughout the Old Testament, that God's mighty hand was what he showed when he took the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, that God, with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, you can look at Exodus 3.19, that God delivered Israel out of Egypt. They're in this, they're in this state of, of suffering, being enslaved, of the people of Egypt seeing them as uh, being opposing them. But then God says, with a mighty hand, uh, he pulled them out of that. And so he says, now, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, that this situation you're in, in the world, in life, where you're standing in the middle of the stream and the whole world just wants you to fall in and float down you know, the current that they're taking, he says, you know, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. He will be the one to deliver you from this. Trust in him. Put your faith in him that this won't last forever, but God will deliver you from this. And what does he say? You know, why should they humble themselves? Uh, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Which is going back to Peter, you know, if he... Uh, it's like he surely gets his message across, right? Suffering, then glory. Humble yourself now, uh, trusting God's deliverance, and he will exalt you. He will bring you into glory. You're suffering now, but there will be glory later, just like Jesus. And so how do we humble ourselves? What does humility look like? He says, humble, humble yourselves by casting all your anxieties on him. And why? Because he cares for you. And so, of course, we can bring any type of anxiety or fear to God. In particular, in context of this passage, he's talking about our anxieties in regard to suffering for our faith, that we're worried about, well, if I speak up here, I might lose my job, or if I say this, that I'm going to lose uh, belonging, those people won't respect me, that I'm going to lose things, I'm scared about losing those things. And he says, uh, cast all those anxieties on him, that trust in him to deliver you. Whatever you lose now, you'll gain back you know, a hundredfold in the end. And why does he say it? It's because he cares for you. And typically, we have an easy time believing one of two things. Either God is fully in control, or God cares. Because we think, well, I know God cares, but it seems like he can't do anything about the things going on in my life, so he must not have control. Or we feel like, I know God's in control, that he's all-powerful, but I don't really believe he cares enough to do anything with that power for my good. And really, he's saying here, under God's mighty hand, that he's got this under control, uh, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares. This is both that God is in control and he cares, and that's why we should come to him. And it's interesting to look. We talked about you can know the definition of something by its opposite. And so he here he says, humble yourselves and we discover that the opposite of humility would be anxiety. That if we hold our anxiety to ourselves, like anxious about my life, I'm going to try to save it, and I don't bring it to God, that that 
that I'm not humbling myself. I'm not humbling myself in front of Him to be the one who saves me and restores me and exalts me in the end, that I'm going to hold all these anxieties and I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to take care of this. And so anxiety in many ways can be a, a form of pride, that we're trusting in ourselves, we're, we're refusing to let go, we're refusing to surrender to God and say, you've got this. I don't need to have it together. You've got this. And so uh, we need to let go, give up control. And then he talks about the lion and how to deal with the lion that is roaming around the world. Not literal, but uh, Satan, he says. So in verse 8 he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so there's this lion out there, there's this adversary, and this lion is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, to destroy. Uh, Satan, the devil's uh, main goal is that we would abandon faith, that we would say, this just costs too much. I'm losing too much stuff, I'm losing too much status, and I, I can't do it anymore. I just need to abandon this faith in Jesus, or I at least need to tone it down a bit, make it a little bit less intense so that people will accept me and I can have my status and the stuff I have still. And he says, well, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's a lion out there. Be vigilant, be alert, be ready. This lion wants to defeat you, to make you abandon your faith through this roaring. And uh, a lot of times, um, at least what I've read is that I've never experienced it, but lions uh, roar in order to hope that one of the animals they're hunting will get scared and run off from the, the main group. And so this, this roaring lion is like for somebody to say, I'm either they maybe too, get too scared, like I can't be part of this church thing anymore, and now they've you know, gotten scared of how much they're going to lose, and they, they run off, and that's when he has an opportunity to devour. And so really Peter's talking about suffering in this whole book, and he's pulling back the curtain now. He hasn't mentioned Satan or the devil before, but now he's pulling back the curtain, and who's behind all this suffering? Really, it's, it's him, the devil, uh, Satan. He wants to devour you. Instead of denying yourself, he wants you to deny Christ, to abandon faith. And Peter knew this all too well because the night when Jesus had the Lord's Supper, or you know, the Last Supper with them, and he tells Peter, Satan has de- desires to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And then and he says, once you're restored, you will go and comfort and strengthen your brothers as well. So Peter denies Jesus, but it's not a complete failure. Jesus restores and he comes back to Jesus. And the next way to deal with the lion is in verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. Firm in your faith. To just say, no, I'm going to stay true to Jesus. I'm going to resist all of his temptations, all of his fear tactics. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to keep holding on to Jesus. And he says, you know, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so he's saying, this isn't unique to you. We're all going through this together, that there's people around the world that are suffering the same way you are for their faith. And I brought these little magazines. Uh, they're called Voice of the Martyrs. And they have these stories about how people are living out their faith in difficult areas throughout the world. And I don't, for, some, for some reason, they started sending them to me. I, don't, I never subscribed, but they'll have stories in here. So I just wanted to bring these and offer it. If you want to take one, just take it and read the stories. And you can get um, stories of how people are suffering around the world. Um, so that's dealing with the line, and then he comes back to, listen, suffering and then glory. Uh, verse 10, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So after suffering, there's glory. God himself will confirm, strengthen, restore, and establish you. He'll exalt you. He'll give you glory. And so there's this reversal. He's saying that, yes, now you don't you look like you're losing, but there will be a reversal in the end where you will win because God himself is going to restore you and confirm you and establish you. And it says God himself, I love that part of it, where it says, uh, and the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. God personally. He's not going to delegate it to someone else. God himself is going to bestow on us uh, that restoration and establishing. And then he says in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which is reminding us who's on the throne here? Who's in control? Who is king? Who will win? And he says Jesus will win. There's temporary suffering, but there's eternal glory in his kingdom. So Peter, coming to the end here, he closes, says, uh, by Silvanus, meaning it's by Silvanus that he's writing this letter. Silvanus is, uh, Peter's telling him what to write, and Silvanus is writing it down for him. Uh, he says, as a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written to you briefly, briefly to you. And I just want to give a quick sidebar on what he says here. By Silvanus, I've written briefly to you. Uh, because perhaps your vision of how the Bible came about was that, um, I don't know, Peter was just sitting in a room by himself, and all of a sudden God was like, it's time to write something. And he just you know, had his eyes closed. And when he opened his eyes, he had First Peter in front of him. Uh, that's not really how it happened. He hears about these churches uh, over in this other region that he's not a part of, and they're going through this difficulty. And so he decides, I'm going to write to you. He says here, I've written to you briefly, briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And so he's like, I want to help these churches. I want to exhort to them and declare them I, to them. I want them to be able to stand firm in this grace. And Peter, I don't know for sure, but it seems like he didn't know how to write. So he's like, Sylvanus, I'm going to tell you what I want you to write, and you're going to write it down on this piece of paper. And then it's going to be sent with someone, perhaps Sylvanus or somebody else who's sent it with him to get it delivered. And so there's this process, and we affirm in our statement of faith that the Bible is both a human book and also a divine book. Just like Jesus is you know, fully human, fully, fully God, the Bible is fully human, fully God. That there is this process over which uh, God was superintending that this is the stuff that he wanted us, all of Jesus' followers to know down through the centuries. So just a quick sidebar there, because people will say, make comments like, well, just people full of human errors and, and whatnot, you know, and, and like, you don't, you don't even know who this guy is. How would you trust in him? And it's important for us that we know actually how the Bible came together. So we're not surprised when somebody brings it up to us and we're like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't know how it came together. And he says that he's writing, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And Babylon, there's not a literal Babylon while Peter's here, but he's thinking back to when uh, the kingdom of Babylon came and took the people into exile, and now they were strangers and sojourners and foreigners in this new land. And so now he's writing from Rome, and he's saying, Babylon is Rome now that we are in exile, we're sojourners and strangers, uh, foreigners in exile in Rome, just like in Babylon in the Old Testament. And so he's saying, I'm writing to you uh, to encourage you. All of us are in this together. I find it interesting, I'm not going to say much about it, but he says, 
Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And I was kind of looking at that and I was like, I don't really know why, you know, this seems like just kind of like, you know, sincerely Peter. You know, this is kind of like a, a throwaway verse. And I was like, isn't it interesting that he takes the space to, tell, to remind them, greet one another with the kiss of love. Uh, greet each other. This is important. When you get together, you all are coming together as people who've been suffering for your faith. And don't come in, you know, just feeling like, woe is me. I mean, you can tell people, other people about what's going on, but he's like, greet one another with this kiss of love. Show your love for one another and enjoy each other and welcome one another and embrace each other. He's saying, this is your group, this is your people that you're going through this with. And so, be happy to be together and show love to each other. So as we wrap up this letter, we hear in verse 12, he says, this is what Peter's been doing. I've been exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what he's been doing is telling them this is what the true grace of God is. What I want you to do is stand firm in it. And my question is, well, how do you stand firm in grace? And also, what is grace? What is this true grace of God that he's been talking about? Uh, he, if we go back throughout the whole letter, grace is all that God has done because of who he is. That's really how Peter talks about it in this letter, that because of God's mercy, because of his grace, it's, uh, grace is all that God has done because of who he is. And if we go all the way back to the very first passage, chapter uh, 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, uh, he talked about kind of the story of what your life is. You have this beginning, your life with Christ is you heard this good news, you're born again, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and you're, now you're set up to have this end, this living hope, this inheritance, this glory, this salvation that's coming to you. So your beginning was God calling you out of darkness, and now looking forward to that. But he also talks, spends most of this letter talking about the middle. That's your beginning of your story with God, that he called you out of darkness by his mercy, you were born again, you become a new person, and you have this hope to look forward to, but what does it look like in the middle? And he uses two times, he says, uh, in the middle, you will, are suffering a little while. And he talks about loving and trusting Jesus, rejoicing because of our beginning and our end, set our hope fully on Jesus. And he says what God's doing in the middle, he's guarding you by his power through faith. And he's also, as you're suffering, the spirit of glory rests on you, that God is with you, he's in this with you, that he's wanting to bring you to the end. He started you and he's going to get you to the end. And this middle time, is this is a time of suffering for a little while, but in the end there's glory and praise and honor from Jesus himself and God himself saying, I'm going to establish you and confirm you and restore you. And so he's saying our middle is stand firm in grace. It was God's grace that began you with him, God's grace at the end, and in the middle, stand firm in that grace that God has brought you into this. And throughout the New Testament, Peter says it by saying, uh, you'll suffer a little while. The Apostle Paul says, the suffering we experience now is incomparable with the glory of, that we will have in the end. He's saying this is just so small, it's light and momentary affliction, uh, is that what happens in the middle is nothing compared to where he's bringing us in the end. And Peter wraps this letter up with humility. He's been all about hope, and now he wraps up with humility. And really, hope requires humility, because humility means uh, we're trusting someone else with our future. We're trusting someone else to take care of us, that things don't seem right at this moment, that I'm suffering, things are going wrong in my life. Like, if I have, 
if I talk to people about Jesus, this is how they're going to respond. And so he, hope requires humility because it's trusting someone else with your life and future. It's moving from I've got this to God's got this. And I feel like that's one way to really sum up what Jesus, how he lived. It, was all, it wasn't, uh, you know, I've got to get this all together. But he was always thinking, God's got this. God's got me. Like, God's got all this going on. I'm, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and so we stand firm in grace through humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So when we humble ourselves, that's us standing firm in grace because God gives grace to the humble. And the opposite, what would not standing firm look like? It would look like misplaced hope that we're standing firm in something else, feeling like uh, you know, the self in the world, like I'm standing firm in myself of what I can do for myself, what I can how I can save myself and protect myself from people rejecting me or losing my money or my job or having less respect is that I'm going to take that upon myself and I'm standing firm in that and I'm standing firm in the world. I want what the world has to offer, this worldly stuff, this worldly status. And Jesus said, if you're going to try to save your own life uh, by giving uh, in to the world, then you've lost your life. He says, but anyone who loses their life for my sake and for the Gospels, they will save, have it saved because on the last day, he's going to identify it with them when he comes in glory. So we need to put ourselves in God's hands. And this quote I really appreciate. Uh, Really, humility puts us in a position to receive from God. That's why God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humility puts us in a position to receive from God. In this book called Humility by Andrew Murray, he says this, Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, So the moment God finds the creature based and empty, will his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. He that humbleth himself, that must be our one care, shall be exalted. That is God's care. By his mighty power and his great love, he will do it. So he talks about, it's our, what we should be caring about and concerned about is, am I humbling myself? And leave God's job to him that he will exalt and glorify And what we have is really this whole letter is that our hope is that God's grace is that he's going to reverse what we experience from the world. We can either feel comfortable and good and accepted and belong in the world or we can be rejected by the world as sojourners, strangers, citizens, you know, people that don't belong here. And then that will be reversed where it's like, okay, now I have belonging with God in this uh, glory and new creation he's invited me into And hope means we're rejoicing in a future that is not yet here. Hope means we're rejoicing in a future that is not yet here. That despite what our circumstances might say about whether we should be rejoicing or not, that doesn't matter. I'm rejoicing in a future that is not yet here, that God has promised me, and he will get me to. Let's pray. Father, this book was all about hope and being different and how hope fuels us to be different, that when we know that there is something in the future that you've promised, that there is going to be a better uh, future for us than we are having now, that allows us to let go of what we have going here. And so God, would you help us with that? Would you help us to be humble? And would you let us have hope as we humble ourselves before you? In the name we pray. Amen.